Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast, and this one promises to get off to a fiery start, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Anthony Sanfilippo, at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined as always by my co-host Bob Wankel, at BW Crossing Broad, uh, our Phillies writer at CrossingBroad.com. And, uh, you know, we were getting all excited the last couple of days because the Phillies uh, were in first base, uh, first place for a hot second, but here we are recording at midnight immediately following the first game of the Dodgers series in which the Phillies blow a 4 nothing lead and lose 5-4 to four in the most Phillies way possible. And I know Bob was texting me during the game. We're back going back and forth the whole time. I know he's a little fired up. I know I'm a little fired up. So this promises to be a really exciting episode right off the top. Right, Bob? There are some things that were said in those text messages that we will not repeat on this show. That's all I'm going to say. Listen, I got a story for you. When I was uh, eight years old, the Phillies were in the World Series in 93, right? Okay. And Mitch Williams gives up the home run to Joe Carter. And I'm sure everybody remembers where they were and, and what happened and all that stuff. You know where I was? I was on my living room floor pounding the ground just slamming my fist into the ground and I remember going into my room and I had the entire 1993 Phillies team I had every one of their baseball cards like tops Fleer, like in every single set and I took all of the Mitch Williams cards and I threw them into the fireplace and I tell you this story because last week you said to me, man, like the guy that I see on Twitter that, that kind of like live tweets these games is a lot different than the one that I talk to on this show. And, and right. I said, you know, I can't really necessarily describe the type of person that I am, but I think that that little anecdote adequately kind of describes the way that I look at these games. And that game was so absolutely outrageous tonight. That I, I don't think that I'm going to be as angry or come across as angry as you would expect me to because it was just, it was so bad. And it's funny because I said to you earlier this week, wait until we get a podcast off the, off the heels of a really bad loss because it's going to happen. And sure enough, uh, here we are because this is about as bad as you can possibly imagine. Uh, that eighth inning tonight was something else. Uh, and. <laughs> I mean, I just don't even know. I don't even know where to begin with this. Well, let, let's let's start with the bullpen um, because Luis Garcia and Adam Morgan uh, come, come in and neither can get the job done. And it's hard to it's hard to rip Garcia because he's been pretty solid for the Phillies so far this year. Yeah, and pitching but for the, the it, third time in three days. Uh, you yeah, know. but it, <laughs> it's what we've been. It's what we keep saying, and it's it, I, I hate I hate sounding like a broken record. Like we we discuss what we're going to talk about before the show, and we try to avoid bringing up things we talked about on pre on like the last episode or or two episodes ago, and we try to avoid that, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that this has been a recurring thing that we've been seeing cracks in the armor with this bullpen, and other than Sir Anthony Dominguez, there, there's not a lot of real reliability at the at, in this bullpen right now and boy they they really hope got to hope pat neshek's coming back because I, I, there, there was actually discussion tonight that he will be throwing a bullpen this week um uh, and hope and he's on the trip so they're hoping to like expedite his return um nevertheless uh, the, the bullpen is is an issue and it's it, you would text one thing i will say that you I, that you texted me that you we can say on this show is that you said luis garcia's arm's going to fall off and I responded to you that he's not the only one. Like, the bullpen is taxed, and it's May. It's May 28th, 12th, 29th now, and the bullpen is taxed. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a shame because this team deserves a little bit better than that. 
Well, this is how I look at this. Is, is this on the bullpen? Is this on Luis Garcia? I mean, tonight, the, the first batter of the inning, Yasiel Puig comes up and, and hits a ball. And I know it's a tough play for Michael Franco at third base, but I thought he sat back on that ball, let the ball play. Or, you know, you know the, the ball played him. It did. And I, I thought that that was a play that a, a third baseman in major league level should make. And he doesn't. And, and really, that was the least uh, egregious of the uh, adventures in that inning defensively. But, I mean, we're talking about a, a drop pop-up and a comebacker to Adam. Morgan later in the inning that it's a dead rundown between third and home with Kemp who is the go-ahead run if he just fields the baseball I mean is this a bullpen thing is this a defense thing because let me tell you this was not an anomaly tonight this did not just this is not something that just kind of happened I mean this defense now has been wretched for the last three four weeks it seems like every night there has been a, a new a, a new blunder you say man that's that's different and I mean they're they're second in the National League behind San Francisco in total team errors you know and it's just one of these things where every single night you you look at them and you go they just they don't play clean defense and so is this a bullpen thing that we're talking about or is this a defense thing we're talking about well Bobby asked me where to start I mean, we had, there was a lot of places we could have gone with this. I picked the bullpen. But you're right. The defense is an issue as well, and it has been. Um, two more errors in this game. Uh, there was an error on Hoskins earlier in the game in left field, um, and then there was uh, the one on Hernandez um, dropping the pop-up or missing the pop-up. I don't think he ever saw it to begin with, uh, but nevertheless, he should still make the play. Uh, they, gave a hit, they gave a hit on the play on the comebacker to Morgan, I guess because it was hit hard. But I mean, yeah, come I mean, on, that, that's a play that has to be that's made. That's a play and, that has to be made, you know. And, and really, right. it's a shame because I mean, clearly that's on Morgan. But did he throw the ball fairly well uh, in his appearance tonight? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, he did. He did. I just it just didn't get any help, you know, either from himself defensively or what was happening around him. Uh, there was a, a was it a wild pitch or a pass ball mixed in there as well. So yeah, I mean, it, it just it was a mess. It was a complete mess. Um, and. It, this this is the other thing, and this is what's going to get overlooked. And and really, had tonight not played out the way that it did, this is probably this would have been our primary focus. I would have talked about the offense. I mean, look at the first inning tonight: a pair of walks, a catcher's interference, uh, a pass ball, and and the Phillies don't even get a hit in the inning. They score only one run. Michael Franco pops out the infield, uh, and then Nick Williams strikes out to end the inning. Only one run in the first. They had a chance to put a crooked number up right away, right off the bat. And, you know, second inning, I know Cesar Hernandez, it's a three-run homer. It's great. But then you go into shutdown mode, you don't score the final seven innings of the game. I mean, you need more offensively, too. So we'll look at this this eighth inning. We'll look at the, the defensive miscues, the inability of the bullpen to, to shut the door after Dominguez exits the game, and, and that's all fine and well. But, I mean, offensively, this was a train wreck as well you know in my opinion too you you had one one big swing and that was it and that's really been what the Phillies have been for for quite a bit of this season and it's a concern at this point I don't even know where to go at this point Bob because I mean it's yeah we could we could go any any, we could go anywhere (laughs) several different directions but let's look at the let's go to offense just for a second since you just brought it up let's look at it real fast let me ask you this question this is the this is the God's honest truth this is the this is a direct question you know, and it, it's based off of um, the media asked Gabe Kaplan before the game today. They said, you have, you, have you been thinking about the possibility of taking Reese Hoskins out of the number two hole? And uh, Kaplan's response was, um, no, because I want, you know, one of our best hitters hitting second. And I said, okay, fine. Bob Wankel, here's the question for you. Who are the best hitters on the Phillies right now? 
probably Hernandez, Odubel Herrera, and uh, uh, Carlos Santana. That, that would probably be the three best hitters. Is there any? Would you qualify anyone else in that in that category? No. Right. So you have three guys who are getting on base and hitting at this point. Three out of eight or nine, if you're playing in the you know an uh, American League game with a DH. But you have three guys out of eight who are getting on base with any kind of consistency. That's not – you're not going to win games like that. And and the one thing is – and I, I know this is something else you wanted to bring up later in the show, and we'll get to it. Um, but you can't just sit there and hope for a home run. And the Phillies got it tonight. They got the three-run home run from Cesar Hernandez. And so they're up 4 nothing. and Velasquez is pitching decently, and then, you know, he goes into typical Velasquez mode in the sixth inning, and I th- thought the Phillies brought in the wrong pitcher at the wrong time, and, and it all kind of, you know, went downhill from there. But you're right. The offense needs to do more. You need to, you need to manu- when you're not scoring, you need to manufacture runs. You need to find a way to manufacture runs. If you got a guy on base, you got to get him to second. Whether you're stealing a base or bunting him over or hitting the ball, the op, you know, you know pu- pulling the ball if you need into the hole on the first base side or get the runner hit and run. There's something that's not done in baseball anymore. Or hit and run for God's sake. I mean, you got to find ways to get runners around the bases and put them, get them to third base with less than two outs. You're not always going to hit that sacrifice fly. I mean, Mike Calfranco popped out with the bases loaded and one out tonight, right? So that, that didn't happen. But you got to at least try. you got to move runners around. And the Phillies never do that. And that's a disappointment to me because I would think that if you really are a student of the game and you're studying numbers and looking at everything and you're sitting there saying, okay, well, this is how we are right now. We need to be better. We need to score more runs. How can we do it? Well, we've got to find a way to do it. And they're just so stubborn that they, they're unwilling to move off of their belief that this will eventually come to fruition because math tells us it will. And I don't buy it. I'm sorry. I don't know well, how you feel, but I don't. What happens when the results start to change, though? Because by and large, to this point, this has been the formula, right? They, they pop, they flash for one big inning. The starting pitching's been good enough. And then the bullpen, for the most part, uh, you know, we, we would both admit that there are some leaks here, and, and obviously they've had their issues. But for the most part, this bullpen has done a pretty decent job. Tonight, them, uh, you know, that unit combined with the defense, they didn't get it done. So they they came in tonight, what, 29 and 21. They're 29 and 22 right now. They've had success winning games with this formula, though you can question the wisdom of it. And tonight they, they got the big blast early from Hernandez. Velasquez carries the no-hitter into the sixth, runs into some trouble, but still five and two-thirds, three hits, six strikeouts. Decent job, right? Fairly quality start. Um, bullpen, you know, Sir Anthony, our boy, uh, yeah, great job. And he takes you into the eighth inning, and then they just couldn't hold the deal. And you know, what if they did though? Would we be as critical right now if they if they got the job done tonight and they win this game four to two? And we're saying, damn, pretty impressive to go out on the West Coast and and kick it off game one of a ten game trip. With a, a big win out on the road on Memorial Day, good stuff, feeling good. And instead, they don't. They're going to wake up in third place tomorrow, which I know doesn't matter at the end of May. But considering where they were on Saturday afternoon, uh, life comes at you fast here. And, and there, there's a lot to kind of, 
I guess, worry about, you know, and that's the thing. I know that you can you can stand back from this and say it's one game of 162, but there are significant issues here. And considering they have another three games in L.A., then they go out to San Francisco, and I know the Giants aren't great, but it, it's still a difficult place to play. They've traditionally not had a ton, a ton of success there. And then they, oh, by the way, get to go to the Cubs for three games. This could get out of control very quickly. So they're they're going to have to find a way to – start putting up runs on a more consistent basis. They're going to have to try to find a way to stabilize after losing their third third game in, in their last four tries. And this is a very tough way to start a very difficult road trip. And so um, I, I do wonder if they start to have a lack of success, if they start to string together some losses, will Kapler then readjust and maybe kind of refocus his philosophy? Yesterday at the end of the game against the Blue Jays, um, the 5-3 loss against the Blue Jays on Sunday afternoon, Larry Anderson said, I know they like to rely on the big inning, but it seems like it's not happening for them. And Anderson suggested it, that perhaps Kapler has to kind of, you know, reassess his philosophy and be willing to play a little bit smaller at times. Yeah, and I love that I heard the same thing, and I'm glad you heard it as well, because L.A., I love what I, that's what I love about L.A., is he's, you know, uh, unafraid to pull punches, and he will say what he feels and what he thinks because I mean, he knows he's a little bit of a sacred cow, so he he can kind of get away with it when, where maybe other local broadcasters cannot. Um, but I do think that there is a general belief that guys, and you, you hear guys saying these things um, on the even on the TV broadcast, something Cruck more so than than uh, Ben Davis, um, and Schmidt certainly says it because he you know he's another one who doesn't care what what anybody thinks. Um, but they all say kind of the same thing, like. You know, we've been, we've gotten, you know, we've gotten to this point and things are, have been going well and we get it, but there's, I wish that they would try this or I wish they would do that. These are guys who had success in this sport. We're talking about, you know, guys who went to a World Series, guy who's in the Hall of Fame. These are, are, you know, good players. They aren't just, you know, Joe Schmo broadcaster. These are guys who had lengthy careers who were all sitting there saying kind of the same thing. And so I kind of get the sense, and this again, this is just me. Maybe it's because I, I've been down there and been in locker rooms and talked to players and talked to coaches. But I get the sense that not everyone is as on board as we'd like to believe that they are, and, and that's and that's okay. It, it's okay to, to still be there because it's still new, and a lot of people still aren't. It's going to take a while for certain people to embrace what's being done, and th- and that's okay too. But at the same time, you almost have to recognize that this is what it is and say, okay, we've had a little bit of success, but we've also seen where things have gone wrong in this new style. So maybe if we're going to adjust to certain things to accept certain, uh, a certain way things are being done, then maybe the other way needs to accept it back the, you know, to the more traditional styles. Well, we need to have that m- middle ground. We can't be uh, two extremes. We can't be extreme analytic. We can't be extreme traditional. We got to find that middle ground. And I don't think either side right now is really willing to come to the middle. And it doesn't matter for the extreme traditional people if they move to the middle. They can just they can you know yell and scream all they want. But it does matter if the the Phillies coaching staff is st- stays out to their extreme. As long as they are, they have to, in some capacity, come back toward the mainstream just a little bit. Otherwise, we're going to we're going to see more things like tonight. 
All right, so you want to talk about extremes. And I don't want to spend the next 15 minutes of this show talking about the the virtues of bunting and sacrifice bunting, but let's talk about an extreme. Yesterday, Phillies trail 2-0 in the fifth inning, and Scott Kingery leads off the inning with a double. And he's at second base, and that brings up Andrew Knapp. Uh, He of a 154 batting average and 185 (laughs) slugging percentage. He has no home runs and no doubles in 65 at-bats this season. He doesn't have a hit since May 9th, and he's 3 for 35 since April 20th. And what would you do in that situation if your offense was scuffling uh, and you really just, you know you needed to push a run across? What would you do there, Anthony? I would bunt him over. <laughs> There's yeah, no now, question I would bunt him over. Now, with that said, Nick Pavetta uh, was was in the game at that point. I believe he only threw 86 pitches, and we'll talk a little right. bit about Nick Pavetta later on. But uh, they were obviously going to hit for him. They they did anyway. Um, and they obviously they have Nap swing away rather than try to lay down a sack bunt. And what does he do? He fouls out to first base, makes a useless out. They don't advance the runner. They don't score in the inning. And, you know, and, until the ninth when Naris gives up the, uh, the insurance homer, it's a 4-3 game. They come back, get a couple more runs late in the game, and they were a run short. And that run really <laughs> would have liked to have had that one, no, going into the ninth inning. And that, to me, is, is the thing. If you don't want to give up outs, and I know that analytics-based people will tell you that the sacrifice bunt, like Keith Law, if you ever search Keith Law on Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. who writes for ESPN, um, it, it, very sharp guy. And he will tell you that the sacrifice bunt is the single dumbest play in baseball, that it is is a terrible thing and that it just does not work. Uh, and it, it, there is, there's a lot of data that suggests that you are much better off just swinging away. But there are certain situations that call for it. You would have been better off having Vince Velasquez up there in that situation with, with Kingery on second base and nobody out yesterday. I mean, Andrew Knapp right now, and, and I'm not going to try to pile on a backup catcher, but he is – he is useless from an offensive standpoint right now. I'm not telling you that he, he can't you know figure it out or that it's not – whatever. This isn't about Andrew Knapp. It's about a guy that can't hit right now that provides no offensive value not doing a job. And it was an obvious situation to try to get a runner over, get a run in, and try to build some momentum back in your favor. And, and they just refused to do it. And they actually uh, – Vince Velasquez in the second inning tonight before Hernandez's three-run homer laid down a sack. Uh, that's only their ninth sacrifice this season, which is the third lowest amount in the National League uh, behind uh, the Pirates and the Mets. So they just – they just don't do it. It's not in their philosophy. And, and that was a situation in, in yesterday's game and Sunday afternoon's game where uh, I think it really came back to bite them. Yeah, and, and, and I, I know you don't want to get into the virtues of this or not, and I'm not going to dwell on it too long. But let me just say this. I didn't necessarily disagree with Keith Law a few years ago when this first came about saying that you're better off hitting a ball. You're better off swinging at a ball than than you know than bunting, right? You're giving up an out just to get up, move a runner, an additional base. However, in today's game where strikeouts are so high, so high, isn't it better to take an out that will move a runner than strike out? I mean, that's that's to, like to me. I think we've gotten back to the point where if we're going to strike out so much, then bunting makes more sense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If, if when we were playing contact baseball, that you're better just making contact and putting a ball in play, swinging the bat. I could I could kind of get on board with the idea that yeah, you know what? Maybe bunting isn't as as good of a thing. But if we're going to strike out 35 percent of the time or whatever the the rate is at this point, 
then yeah, then I'd rather then I'd like my chances bunning the runner over. Thank you very much. I'll I'll take that. I'll I'll trade that out for the extra base because it'll uh, allow me to score a run. And I think that the Phillies need to con- consider that a little bit more when you only have three guys in your lineup who are consistently getting on base, and that's your leadoff hitter, your three hitter, and then your whatever they decide to bat Santana four or five, and that's it. They, they have nothing else right now. And take this for what it's worth. I mean, the top running teams are St. Louis. They're a middle-of-the-road offense in the National League. Um, Cincinnati, uh, it, it, frankly, is a bad offense, uh, very weak team offensively. But Atlanta and Chicago both do it quite a bit. Uh, and I was surprised to see the Cubs up there, you know, because Joe Madden, obviously, is at the at the forefront of thinking different. Um, but they, well, they, but- that maybe that and, yeah, and maybe and that's maybe, the that, thing. maybe that proves your point. I don't know, but right. they're now they're among some of the better offenses in the National League. So there, there's not necessarily a correlation between teams that bunt being very successful or unsuccessful offensively. But what I what I see with the Phillies, they're 21st in team batting average. Uh, I know they walk; they they take four walks per game. They're second in Major League Baseball behind only the Yankees, and that's why they're 321 on base percentage is respectable uh, at this point. But you look at runs per game, and I know that that's the bottom. Line. The name of the game is runs per game, and they're 10th in baseball entering today in runs scored per game, So, and 4th in the National League. So you can't knock it, but to me, they're, like you say, there, there is maybe some hidden value in doing this, and I, I know that they have they have produced runs, but when you watch this team on a, a night-in, night-out basis, you see that this offense leaves a lot to be desired. You said it earlier in the show. I mean, there's really three guys right now swinging the bats. And, and we're not talking about people that have been cold for a series or two. We're talking about guys that have been in slumps for, for four or five weeks now, um, and, and guys like Altair even that have been really in season-long slumps. So this is something that has to get corrected. They cannot continue to sustain a winning track if this is how they're going to perform offensively. I just, I don't see it. So you're going, so Dodger Stadium is certainly a park that favors pitchers. Um, And then AT&T out in San Francisco certainly favors pitchers. You're going to get Kershaw on Thursday. He's coming back off the DL to pitch that game. I'm really looking forward to it because it's going to be Kershaw versus Nola, but you got to face Kershaw. And then also coming off the DL on Friday is Madison Bumgarner. <laughs> and they're going to be facing Madison Bumgarner this week back-to-back, Kershaw and Bumgarner. You know, you're, you're going to start seeing more of these, like, elite pitchers. The Phillies haven't really – I mean, other than the, the, the Mets series, uh, the, the short series that they've played against – two short series they've played against the Mets, they really haven't seen, like, dominant pitchers yet, right? I mean, they didn't, they didn't face Scherzer against Washington, correct? Or uh, they did. For, no, they they did they, face Scherzer. Get, yeah, did on the, they face the Scherzer? Sunday game where uh, Arietta oh, went right. up yeah, against You're right. That's right. Yeah. It was Arietta Scherzer. Right, but they didn't face Strasburg. Okay, so they had one game against Scherzer. Um, uh, the Bra- I mean, the Braves pitchers are are decent, right? I, I mean, mean, I guess faced, they have faced Brandon McCarthy four times, uh, <laughs> and he's what four zero I mean, no against, and he's been pretty them. damn good. So, yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. No, I, but I, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so they're going to start seeing some better pitching in this stretch where we're playing good teams. And it's going to be. I think that's going to be the the real indicator where we're going to sit here and say, okay, when is enough enough? Because I don't know. I don't know that they we can sit here and rely on that one or two big innings per game against a uh, better pitching against teams with better pitching. That's all. I I just don't think it, we can, it's reliable. It's reliable enough. It look if the Phillies had multiple guys 
who were putting up decent seasons, even if you know some guys are slumping for a couple weeks here and there, but other guys are hot, and it's just kind of back and forth. Uh, it, it wasn't like a season-long thing or a five-week-long slump or whatever the case might be for each individual player. If they, if they were more consistent, then I would have zero problem with this. I'd say, okay, you know what? Look back at the team that won the World Series. The Phillies back then, I mean, they relied a lot on the on the long ball. I mean, they really did. When you when you look back at it, I mean, they were they were a team that we, you relied on the big inning, right? A lot of times. Yeah, but there were six or seven guys in that lineup that right. that you felt like, damn, they could do it right now at, at, you know, at any time, at any point. Yeah, right. And that, but that was the thing, and that's what I'm saying. So if, when you have consistency in your lineup, you could certainly play with this style. I mean, it's 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 been proven to work, and that's so. I'm I'm not opposed to the concept. I'm just opposed to the concept when you have a lineup that's not that's not being consistent. You have to come up with something else when the when the lineup isn't working. Get the lineup moving and everybody's everybody's hitting again and it's starting to come through. You know, June, July when it's hit, you know, it's hitting season. At that time of year, fine. You want to go with this? Okay, I, I get it. But when the team's struggling to, at the plate, you got you got to come up with something. You've got to manufacture runs. I don't, I'm sorry, and I and the fact that you're the fact that you are dead set against it tells me that your stubbornness is is not a good thing for for the team. In my mind, in in my opinion, you can't be this stubborn when when things are not working. So so let me try to take this in a direction that maybe we didn't plan for, and and let me just. Go ask you this like I buy into and, and this again is me being uh, emotional and reacting to what I see and and had the Phillies won this game tonight I would have came on here and I probably would have pissed positive I would have said this is look at this team you know they lose two out of three to Toronto but but here they are and they're doing it again and they bounce back and how about those fighting fills so now instead we get what we saw tonight this just complete implosion late in this game they just the, the Dodgers sawed away that lead. They they swipe one from the Phillies, and now the Phillies have another three games in L.A. Like you said, Clayton Kershaw's coming on Thursday. Madison Bumgarner's coming this weekend. You got the Chicago Cubs, and the Phillies have had a, a hell of a time at Wrigley over the last couple of years. Everyone's had a hell of a time at Wrigley over the last couple of years. Right. You, you look at this. How concerned should Phillies fans be? How concerned are you right now that this, this loss tonight – might be the the beginning of a stretch where you say, "Oh, you know, th- this is this is what we were waiting for. We knew this was coming, but here we are now." Uh, okay, so tonight is you're uh, you're exactly right. There's a fine line right between winning and losing, and, and the way you feel about a team, you know, based off of that win or that loss that is vi- on that very fine line. And you're right. If they would have won the game tonight, been with this whole podcast would be a whole different. Temperature. And, and right let me now. just let me just chime in. And this, you know why I ask you this? Because we've had this conversation, and we kind of talked a little bit about it. We alluded to it at the top of the show. I feel like I watch this team one night, and I go, "Damn, they're going in the right direction." And then the next night, I watch them, and I go, "What is this? Nobody can hit. You know, these moves are crazy. Like, what am I? I just feel like I'm so up and down with this team. And I I know that that's somewhat natural with a baseball team because every night's a different thing. But I just I feel like I'm on a seesaw watching these guys right now, and I need you, the voice of reason, to bring some stability to me. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, here's here. I'm gonna try. I'll try and give you your stability. Okay, they are a little Jekyll and Hyde, and I do think that they're still going in the right direction, even if they even if they really kind of have a, like a little bit of an implosion on this road trip, and it's not a good road trip. I still, no matter what, at the end of this road, they could lose seven of ten, and I will sit here and tell you the Phillies are still heading in the right direction. That said, 
I, I kind of felt like there was a lot of there was a lot of overreaction to their the way they were playing and, and the good start they got off to. And the realist in me said, you know what, this team's going to fall back to earth a little bit, and then the real test is going to be how they respond to that adversity. And I think that the, I think that we are we've been seeing it coming because I think that they had a couple of lucky wins, a couple of fortunate breaks, and then they lose two out of three to Toronto. Okay, all right, that's the first series loss in a while. All right, we'll 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 get over that. And then you have the eighth inning implosion tonight, and now it's like, oh boy, that's three out of four. Either you get right back on track again, and maybe you know split this series, and you know try and play 500 baseball on this road trip, and you say, okay, come home five and five from this trip. Okay, we can we could survive that. But if things start to snowball a little bit here, I mean, the one thing I will say after as soon as the game was over, there were a few players who didn't immediately go into that clubhouse. They sat on that bench. They had their head in their hands. They were staring into the sky. Like this loss bothered them. It hurt, it hurt them, and, and it makes you wonder now: How will they respond to that? How do they? How does a young team take a bad loss, which is, in my mind, probably their worst loss of the year? How does how does a team take that loss and respond? Do they do they just turn you know flip the switch and go back in the other direction? And, and then you say, okay, well, that's good, that's a positive. Um, or do they sit there and, and let it fester? Yeah, and, and neg- we've talked about this, and we've talked about this. They've been yeah. resilient in, in spurts this season, where you say they yeah. had a bad loss and they bounce back the next night, and that really has been the pattern. This one just felt, uh, this one different. felt a little bit different, right? Yeah. And I think the fact that they're on the West Coast, it just has this different feel to it, and uh, I'm a little bit concerned uh, after yeah. this one. I really and that's am, fair. and you should be, and you should be. Which yeah. kind and, of, well, let's let's just let's just throw in real yeah. quick. Um, we did get. Uh, the latest update uh, on Reese Hoskins in that ninth inning, he um, uh, fouled, fouled a ball, ball off. off his face. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, which is crazy. Like, I, I, at first, I didn't even think the ball hit the bat. I had to watch a replay twice. I, at, at, at the first couple times, I didn't think it hit the bat. I thought it hit off of his arm and kicked up and, and got him in the mouth. But it didn't. It actually did nick the bat and went up and hit him in the mouth. Cut lip. Um, but Kapler says he's not worried about it. We'll see if Reese Hoskins is in the lineup against the, the Dodgers on Tuesday. Um, so uh, that's just the latest up. That's all we're going to be able to get you. Uh, at, I would at like this to see point, him so. out of the lineup for a, a day or two just to kind of reset himself. I mean, if you've watched his body language the last few games, yeah, I mean, it's he's, terrible. He's, he's hunched over after at bats. He's arguing with umpires. He has no feel. Uh, I think he's now it's starting to, I, I think, carry over to his defense out in left field, which was never great to begin with. But there's some routine things that, that he's not getting done out there now. Uh, I, I just think he needs to take a a breath and and one thing I've tried to do because younger me would probably be like this guy's Darren Ruff he's Don Brown we've been fooled again and I don't really believe that I, I think that this guy's a good baseball player uh, I think that he's going through a, a hellacious slump right now um, I I expect I expect him to come out of this but we have had this conversation in, in bits and pieces over the over the past few weeks and it hasn't gotten any better, and I just think that what they're doing with him right now, trying to have him play through this, I appreciate the, the, the I guess, faith and, and then the support that Kapler's shown him, but they've got to do something different with him because th- this just isn't working, and, and this is not how I wanted to see him come out of the lineup, uh, but if, if he's out for a day or two, maybe maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Maybe it forces Kapler to do something that he otherwise wouldn't have done. I mean, and I hate to say that, but this, something's got to change here. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I 
kind of have been feeling that Reese Hoskins needs a day or two to just sit back and just watch the game and just, you know, do his video, do his work in the tunnel, you know, in the batting cage and not worry about the lineup and just kind of, you know, take take a breather and then get back out there again. Um, you know, somewhere down the road, maybe, maybe it's, it's weird to say this, but maybe you, th- you give them, give them the next two days and then you throw them back in against Kershaw and Bumgarner just because they're lefties. Right. And then, you know, put them out there against those guys. Um, and then if, you know, if, if he has a bad game while well, it was Kershaw and Bumgarner, but if he actually gets a couple hits and it's like, wow, there you go. Now you and get maybe something gets going, going. Yeah. gets him going a little bit. Right. So, I mean, that, so that I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. I, not, not at all. I think that that would actually be a benefit for the Phillies, um, and, and definitely for Hoskins as well. All right. So that brings us uh, to, to the next thing that I want to talk about. So the Phillies on Saturday afternoon, uh, which seems like a long time ago, beat the Toronto Blue Jays 2-1. to one. Aaron Nola carries a no-hitter into the seventh inning. And at the conclusion of that game, the Philadelphia Phillies were in first place, right? For the first time in seven years. Yeah, it's been a while. And uh, 26,788 people were there to see Aaron Nola, one of the best pitchers in the National League, throw that game and carry that no-hitter into the late innings. And the Phillies claim first place. Uh, and that was actually a pretty damn good crowd by comparison uh, to what yep. they have done this season. The Phillies are 19th in Major League Baseball in paid attendance, 25,153 per game. The uh, three-game series earlier in the week, that pivotal showdown, we were billing it as the most important home series for the Phillies, arguably in six or seven years. 21,284 on Monday night, 18,000 and change on Tuesday night, and 27,000 and change on Wednesday night. Uh, where the hell is everybody, Anthony? Well, I, I, do you want me to give my answer first, or do you want to give all your data and your statistics well, first? Yeah, because I, 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 I could give you the answer. Right, I, well, let me. Like, I, so I, I dug into I'll this let, a little I'll, bit. I'll let you. I'll let you throw your numbers out there okay. because there's, it, I think they're good. You did good research, and I want everybody to hear them before I kind of bring bring everything back to reality. Go ahead. Well, you know, first of all, I look at it and say, man, like, did you see Jay Wright's dog at the at the game on Friday night? <laughs> yes, that was I a did. nice moment. Kyle was very excited about it. If he, yes, he, he happened was. to see his tweet, and that's great. And then I thought to myself, oh my god, they're doing a bark at the park night on Friday of Memorial Day weekend. What is going on? And it just made me say, like, is this what it's always been? And people say, well, the weather hasn't been that good, and school isn't out yet, the high schools aren't out yet. And so then I started to kind of go back, and I said, all right, like, let's look at 2011 when they were selling out every night. And they played a four-game series leading up to Memorial Day weekend in 2011, and it was 45000 and change the entire four-game series leading up to Memorial Day weekend. Okay, no problem. That was a different time. 2012? team's not as good, but they're obviously coming off a 100-plus win season. The expectations were still there. Monday through Wednesday, they're drawing about 43,000 the week leading up to Memorial Day. 2013, they stink, and we know it. I mean, they were throwing darts. They were hoping to kind of catch lightning in a bottle. I think that was like the Marlin Bird year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they still draw mid to upper 30s against the Marlins. It was the week after Memorial Day. They were out of town leading up to it. So historically speaking, more people have been at these games. Uh, they've been at these games for lesser teams. This is the, the first time the Phillies have been in first place this late in the season since 2011, like we said. There's been some buzz around this squad. So, so now lay it on me. Where is everybody? Okay, so here's, so here's a couple things that you have to take into consideration. 
Um, one, and you already mentioned weather. We've, we've had terrible weather, and it's been all over the place. It's not just been in Philadelphia. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say that's the primary reason, but we have not had great weather here yet. Um, so that's number one. But number two, um, we also had a, uh, a lot of buzz in this city for the first month of the Philly season about another team in town. And, and the Sixers, you know, take a lot of, take a lot away from uh, we're taking a lot away from the attention on the Phillies. And the Phillies got off to a great start, and that's awesome and wonderful, but the, the Sixers were, were, were where everybody's focus was for the month of April. Okay, even the, even still, let's look, we're into May now, okay? I mean, there were 28 home games. I mean, the Sixers didn't play on those 28 dates, so you know, why, is the, why are the Phillies only drawn 704,000 people to this point? Um, the past six years, they've been terrible. They've been bad for six years. And really, when you look at it, go back. I mean, you're looking at those years, and you're you're looking at those seasons. You got to remember they were. That's coming off of the the greatest run in this in this franchise's history, from 2007 to 2011. So even 12 and 13, you know, and I would even venture to guess. I would bet you to say even a little bit of 14. The numbers weren't too terrible that time of year. So I say you got to make a comparison to another time. You have to make a comparison to a time when the Phillies stunk. And then started to get good again. So I'll give you 2001 as an example. They had the previous six seasons. They were sub-500 team. And in 2001, which was, I think, Boa's first year as manager, um, they were in it until the end of the, until the final games of the season. I think they finished two games out of first that year. I think they were 86 and 76. Was yeah, he was manager record. of the year that year, wasn't he? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Um, their first 28 gates, and I say gates because there was it's actually 30 home games, but there were two doubleheaders. Mm-hmm. They averaged 18,739 people, 524,000 people attended those games. They were in first place for a long time that year. I looked at the entire year. They didn't, with the exception of a series against the Yankees in mid-July and then a series against the Mets, uh, I, I guess it was early August, with the exception of those two series, they never drew. They were in the 20s for games in September – and this is this was the the series after 9/11 which everybody talks about. I mean I I remember covering a game. I was at the first game against Atlanta um back in Philadelphia after 9/11 and it was real emotional and everything else and there was only 20, and I looked at it and I said god it seemed like there was a lot more. There was only 27,000 people at that game. I'm like god it seemed like there were so many more people there and there wasn't. And that series, again, they were pushing. They were in the middle of a five, six-game winning streak at that time when that happened, and they really got back into it. They got within a game of first place in, in late September, and then they kind of collapsed on the road. I mean, they played, I think, their last nine or 12 games on the road um, because they had to make up the week that uh, the games that were canceled. Well, you know what's interesting about this? So you're talking about 2001. Yeah. That's the year that, that the Sixers are in the finals, right? I mean, that's – it's comparative. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. so same, it, 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 it compares. Yeah. So if you look, but, yeah. but if you look at the entire year, and I, I, I was thinking, oh, you're probably right. It ties in with school and everything else. And then, oh, come June, July, August, I'm sure that they drew well. They didn't. So if you look at the whole year, it takes it takes the people in this town time to get back into baseball. And when baseball is good here, you know it. It's it's as good as it gets. This is a great baseball town when baseball is good, but when baseball is not good, this is a terrible baseball town. Yeah, and it, it just it's interesting to me because <laughs> what I come back to is like they're the twelfth worst in the NL in average attendance. They're only yeah. ahead of Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Miami. Yeah. And just you think you got a first place team here. Now you said it when baseball's bad in this town, it's a 
bad it's a bad fan base it's a bad baseball town um does this have anything to do with the lack of marketable players? I mean, we talk about Aaron Nola, and I've said that I think he's a little bit under underrated, underappreciated, however you want to term it. Um, yeah. I mean, who are you coming out to watch, I guess, is another part of this? Well, it's, it's going to take a while. I mean, think about it. I mean, 01, the only players that were on that 01 team were Rollins and Burl, I believe, at that time, that, were, that eventually went on to be on the 08 team that won the World Series. See, they only had two guys, and they weren't even star players. They were very young players at that time. I mean, Scott Rowland, I guess, was their best player in 01. Um, so, I mean, who were you really going out to see? You know, there nobody was going to games then either. So it, it takes a while. I mean, but it, if if you had the foresight to know that Jimmy Rollins was going to be a league MVP and, and you know, be the, the catalyst to carrying a team to a world championship seven years later, you probably went, would go out and see that, that team, right? Um, but you didn't know it in 2001. And so there are players on this team who will likely be part of whatever competitive uh, championship pushing team that the Phillies are going to have. And people just don't know it yet. Yeah, but the only one that you can really see and, and say they're doing it right now would be Odubel Herrera, who we've previously right. talked about relatability and how he's not Philly and, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Which yeah. I, I think it's nonsense, but at the same time, I mean, maybe maybe that's part of the reason that they're not drawing. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, think, I think eventually – I mean, I, the one difference, I think, between now and 2001 is – 2001, they were still playing at the vet, so there wasn't a, it wasn't a an atmosphere type game type place to go. Um, even though the team was playing better, if this Phillies team stays in the race and and you know in the summer months, and there's games that are down there at Citizens Bank that are you know hey they're they're in this they're in the thick of this thing. I think more people will show up. I think you'll I mean I think the difference already. I mean it's already a, they're they're getting seven thousand more people now than they did in 2001 with a with a similar record. Um, and I think that the difference in that, in that attendance has everything everything to do with the ballpark and just the aesthetic quality of it. Um, so I, I think I don't want to come down too hard here, but like, is it kind of lame that that these are the numbers? Like, what does that say about this fan base? And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go here entirely. I'm, I'm not trying to say that well, Phillies fans are front runners. I don't want to go that far, but I mean, I don't know. We're well, 50 we're, games we're into fo- this thing. Like, come on, we're a football town. We're a football town first, first and foremost, and it will never be anything different. Okay, um, and I think we're a basketball town second, baseball third, hockey fourth, um, and it's a good, it's a, it's a good sports town in that regard. But when you look at it, attend, take the NFL out of out of out of the equation because of secondary ticket, the secondary ticket market, so many fewer people are going to games because you can go whenever you want now. Right. I mean, you could just go, oh, you want to go tonight? OK, yeah, we'll get we'll get tickets and get them an hour before the game and they'll be come right to your phone. Like you don't have to try to get tickets anymore. You right. can just get them. Whereas even as as recent as so you think seven, that promotes complacency and, and keeps yes. people away. Yes, I do. I do. It's, it's the con- it's a convenience factor. OK, so one something that one thing that, um, I don't think a lot of people know, but I, I serve on a board for a local theater. And I do a lot of marketing for them. And one of the things that we look at when it comes to our ticket sales is, you know, how do we, how can we attract more people to come to come to see shows? And one of the things that we really look at is not making tickets as easy to get because the easier it is to get tickets, the less likely people are to come because they can just go whenever they want. But, oh yeah, we'll come. 
yeah, we can go whenever. We can grab tickets off of Gold Star. We can right. grab tickets off of the so the the platforms, the 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 ease of the ticket platforms makes it so that you get more you get more complacent. Back in the day, I mean, even ten years ago. You had a you had to have a plan. You had to have a ticket plan, or know somebody who had a ticket plan, or you had to rush down there to go try and get tickets, single game tickets. They had like five hundred that they put on sale, you know, the day of the game. And oh yeah, okay, we'll go get those. We were buying them from a scalper, or at the very the only thing back then that was online was Craigslist, and even then it was sketchy because you didn't know who the hell was selling you their tickets, right? So there was you didn't have these league sanctioned or partnered. Um, sites like StubHub and and SeatGeek and wherever to get as many tickets as you want for any or any event. It doesn't matter. And then there's the inflation on the prices, which some people are going to sit there and say, "Well, geez, I mean, normally I pay, you know, thirty thirty five dollars a ticket, and geez, I go on StubHub and it's you know fifty five dollars a ticket. Well, do I really want to spend an extra twenty bucks a ticket? No, I'll just watch it at home. And I, I really think that the secondary ticket market and the, and the availability of tickets now has made it so that less people go to games. And I just think that that, with the exception of the NFL, because the NFL is its own thing, I think you find that across all sports. Well, I I was interested because my initial premise was that if they had a decent road trip, and I mean, I don't know that I expect them to bounce back and win seven or eight games on this thing, but if they go out and they win their four or five games and they come back and they're they're within a game or two of first place on, uh, I guess, June 8th is when they return home. I believe they come back on June 8th to play the Brewers, if I'm not mistaken. Um, If they're still hovering around at that point, that's when I would expect the attendance to start to tick upward. Now, maybe this is a multi-year process. Maybe this is something that doesn't happen until – even August, you know, September, but I would start to think that there would be some buzz beginning to build and generate when they come back off this trip. We'll see. Now, if that happens to coincide with an absolutely miserable West Coast swing and then a a bad trip to Chicago, I don't know that these numbers are going to see an increase anytime soon. So to me, not even just looking at the standings, I really felt coming into this, into this stretch of games, that this was a huge huge I don't want to know I don't know if I want to call it a turning point or a line of demarcation or or whatever but I thought that this was a really important stretch for this team in terms of of how it's perceived by the public and and you're not wrong I don't think you're wrong with that and I think as long as they keep their head above water it'll be fine but I if I'm looking at the schedule and I sit there and say okay when are the people going to start to show up it's the end of June it's going to be after school lets out. I mean, there is that one series against St. Louis, but it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But I'll tell you, you got a back-to-back series with the Yankees and the, and the Nationals. That week, those seven games, that's when the attendance is going to start showing up. And if the Phillies are still in it after that, you got well, you get the two games against Baltimore, which are fireworks, I think, are their fireworks shows. You, you, do, you do those, and then you go in, you're going into a road trip right into the All-Star game. And then I think at that point, then you'll say, okay, then they're going to start coming out second half of the year. I, I, I firmly believe that. Not to the numbers that we saw in 2011 where you're getting 43,000, 44,000 a game, but I think that you'll start seeing, an, on average, an uptick from 25 now to maybe about 31, 32, if they're still in it at that point. But it's not going to – I don't think we're going to see it in Milwaukee or, against Milwaukee or Colorado just because they're not sexy enough teams. Even though they're decent teams, they're not sexy enough. And that St. Louis series, again, like I said, it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. If that was a weekend series, I could think St. Louis could draw a little bit. Uh, but I think being a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe not as much. But the Yankees and the Nationals, that's when, that's when the, the crowds are going to start to come. And if the Phillies are still playing good baseball at that point, then I think you'll see decent crowds the rest of the year. 
All right. So in order to be positive here, uh, I want to touch on Nick Pavetta real quick. And, Go ahead. Uh, we'll try to get through this somewhat, somewhat timely fashion. But let's talk a little bit about Nick Pavetta. Uh, he was awesome against the Braves last week. Uh, seven innings, shutout baseball. He only allowed four hits, one walk, seven strikeouts. It was it was Nick Pavetta at his best. That was the guy that that we've talked about prior to the season, early on in the season. We said this guy has that ceiling. He has this type of ability to go out and throw these types of games. The concern that I had about Nick Pavetta, and I voiced this on this show, and I, I wrote about it entering the season, was that when he doesn't have his A game like he had against the Braves, then what happens? And we saw that one start down in Washington earlier this season where he you know, pitched the one inning. I think he gave up like seven runs. He was a total disaster. But even that aside, last year he would be cruising along in a game and he would look good and then he would hit some, some trouble. He would lose his command. He'd start to get hit around a little bit and then it would all fall apart. And all of a sudden you look up and say, wow, he lasted four innings. He gave up five, six runs and he looked so good for the majority of this game. What happened? And yesterday against the Blue Jays, he did not have his best stuff, and and the numbers bear that out. His fastball velocity was down by a mile per hour from the Atlanta start. Uh, 78.8% of his pitches were strikes against the Braves. Uh, Only 58% of his pitches were strikes yesterday or on Sunday afternoon against the Blue Jays. Uh, The whiff percentage was down from 18% to 11%. It just wasn't there. He struggled with command, uh, particularly in the first two innings. He gave up two runs in the second. He throws, I believe, 27 pitches in the second inning against the Blue Jays, uh, only 14 of which were strikes. And it looks like uh, this is one of those brutal Nick Pavetta starts. He's going to blow up. Uh, and then he comes back in the third inning, uh, 11 pitches, no runs. Uh, fourth inning, 14 pitches, no runs. Fifth inning, 13 pitches, no runs. And all of a sudden you look up, he goes five innings, only allows two, keeps the Phillies in the game. Offense does anything uh, a little bit sooner. Maybe he's in the game for a sixth inning. Uh, a decent start by Nick Pavetta. And, and to me, this is extremely encouraging because if the Phillies are going to remain competitive, obviously Aaron Nola has to pitch like that frontline guy. Obviously, Jake Arrieta has to be the guy that they thought he would be when they went out and bought him. Uh, but Nick Pavetta, to me, is the key to this entire thing. If he can continue to pitch like he has... This team, despite its inability to to play small ball or its refusal to do so, despite its offensive inconsistencies, can hang around. And and this, to me, was an extremely encouraging start. It was. It was very encouraging. And and like I had had mentioned earlier, I would have liked to have seen him stay in the game. I think that the situation, the way it played out, um, you know, if if, I'll be honest with you, after Knapp doesn't bunt, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and pops out. Um, if if at that point I've just let Pavetta bat. But who that, was I mean, it? Pedro Flormond? Is that who yeah, hit? And then he Flor- struck out. He struck right? out. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so and if you got the bunt down, and then you need to okay, then you need to pinch hit for him. It makes sense to me. All right, fine. Uh, I would have probably kept him in. That said, um, you, you're, you're, the starting pitching has been the there has been the biggest bright spot. Of course, we've talked about this before. So you got five guys who are actually pitching pretty pretty well right now. Even Velasquez pitched another decent game tonight. Um, if you if you can get three out of five good starts a week, that's sixty percent. If you're playing sixty you know six hundred baseball, you're a good team, right? You're a really good team. Um, so 
yeah, I mean, Pavetta is that third guy. I mean, you, you kind of expect Nola and Arietta to give you what they should give you every 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 game, game in, game out. Yes, of course, they're going to have a clunker once in a blue moon, but they're not going to be consistently having clunkers, right? They're going to – they give you 32 to 34 starts in the season. They're going to give you 28, 29 really good starts and four or five that aren't good. If Pavetta can give you 22 really good starts – that's a that's good. That's that's a good number three, you know what I'm saying. And so if he if he can be that guy, if he can be that number three who is consistent, then yeah, then the Phillies are in good shape because and, and this is because this is that, why that's I'm, the thing. This is why I'm excited because you, you look at the strikeouts and you you mentioned this and and I kind of didn't really think about it this way and I'm I'm glad you said this because it sort of leveled me a little bit. But when you start looking at K per nine, right? Yeah. Like, well, strike ups, strikeouts are up all over the league, so you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. I start to look at the different numbers then because you look at his K per nine and it's it's 10.4 right now. So the strikeouts yeah. are there. The, the arm is there. And we already knew that. But the walks per nine down oh, from 3.86 a year ago to 2.17 this year. I mean, yep. that's that's a, a astronomical decline. And that, that's that's been a huge difference. And, and my perception, my eyes have said to me, he's done a lot better job getting out of jams. He's done a much better job leaving guys on base. And the numbers bear that out too. He actually went from 67.1 percent left on base percentage last year that's up to 76 percent this year I mean that's yeah. a that's a dramatic increase and, and that suggests to me that when he gets into trouble he's not getting as flustered he's bearing down and he's executing pitches in tight spots which is which is the hallmark characteristic and really I think the defining quality between mediocre pitchers that sometimes can go out there and sling it and, and then guys that just don't get it done and you say wow they have the arm but why can't they produce and, and to me this is an extremely encouraging development uh, and, and really the three two six ERA that's great. But if you look at the XFIP, like two seven five, this is like top fifteen in baseball stuff that he's giving you right now. Yeah, and it's not just there. I mean, if I think if you look at the hard hit rate, he's among the league leaders. If you look at um, uh, swing and miss, uh, especially against right-handed batters, which is uh, I think the Phillies are among the they have four of the top fifteen pitchers in baseball against right-handed right-handed batters in baseball. right-handed batters um they're really just there, there's not enough good you know accolades to go around for the starting pitching to this point um and and Pavetta is certainly part of that and you know I'm I'm thrilled because we we made him a a key focus of our I think it was our very first podcast that we did together Bob where we talked about Nick Pavetta and said that we felt like there was something there um, and that this this is a guy that the Phillies can you know, if he becomes what the Phillies think he can become he's gonna he's gonna surprise a lot of people this year, and so far through two months of the season he's been a very pleasant surprise um, for for the Phillies and that's great and, and and so yeah they're gonna they're gonna hang around even if they don't hit even if they never recover from even if their guys continue to struggle all year long they're gonna hang around because they have really good starting pitching it, it ultimately that's what this that's what baseball is about. You know, I don't, I don't care what anybody wants to say or how you want to say, oh, they only need to throw five. I don't know. Starting pitching is, is where it begins and ends in a lot of ways. You can have the best offense in the world. If, if you have a, if you have three or four pitchers who can who can you know throw shut down innings, guess what? Yeah, I don't care how good your offense is. You and know you know what? You're, you're absolutely right, and I agree with you and, um, and all of that. But I'm pissed off, and I don't want to talk about positive things anymore. All right? So <laughs> we're going to move on. And, uh, and, who do you want to rip now? Who, who do you want to take I want to talk about Matt Klintak. Uh, oh, the general manager? Come yeah, on Yeah, let's now. talk a little bit about Matt Klintak. So <laughs> I just – 
I have this thing, and um, I, I said this to a friend of mine the other day. We were talking about the Phillies, and he said, well, how do you feel about Matt Klintak? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, what's what's he really done? And Tommy Hunter uh, struggled again on a Sunday afternoon against the Blue Jays, and, and he's been a disaster. And this is kind of what, what got me thinking. I said, you gave this guy, uh, coming off a career year, uh, with the Rays a season ago, a multi-year deal, two-year, $18 million deal, and he's pitched to a 5.11 ERA. He's given up, like I think, runs in five of his 15 appearances. Um, most of the time, he doesn't even pitch an inning for you. Uh, most of his appearances are an inning or less. Um, and I just said, this this doesn't look like it's been a good deal. And then I started to think, like if you look at what this team currently is, most of it has been assembled by the prior regime. Um, so you like Sir Anthony Dominguez right now, right? Uh, that's not a Clentac guy. Uh, you like Nick Pavetta? That's not a Clentac guy. Uh, you know, Nola, Velasquez, Alfaro, Altair, Williams, Eikhoff, Naris, Eflin, Ramos, Garcia, Kingery, Sanchez, Sixto Sanchez. He's been red hot, by the way. The last three starts, he's been like lights out. Yep. Um, and, and that's very encouraging. But all of these guys are from the previous or the, the prior regime. They're not Matt Clentac guys. And, and so I kind of ask you, like, where are you at on him right now? Because – because what I'm going to tell you in a couple minutes when you're done is it, it, I'm not going to paint a very pretty picture. And, and I don't want to be unfair because it's still very early on in this process. He's in the beginning of year three. It takes time. But I, I have not been overwhelmingly impressed. Well, I, I, I think the jury's still out. I mean, I, I you know, I, I can't – I'm not going to sit here and judge him on – some guys he brought in the last couple of years to kind of piecemeal it through two, you know, bad seasons. You know, I'm not going to kill him over, you know, I mean, Clay Buckholtz. Well, I mean, right, Buckholtz, I never liked him. Right, I'm not going to kill him over that either. Right, but, you know, and Charlie Morton, I mean, he got hurt for a year now. You see how he's pitching in Houston. Yeah, he might have had that right, yeah. We could have right, only done that for the Phillies. Um, but, you know, Jeremy Hellickson, Howie Kendrick, I mean, I'm not going to kill him for, you know, even even as bad a move as um, – what was the outfielder's name from Toronto? Oh, my God, I can't remember his name. <laughs> uh, the guy that stood out in right field. Yeah, he was uh, terrible. At the beginning of last season. Yeah. yeah. I, I, just try to make I, that go uh, away. Well, I, uh, Michael Saunders. Yeah. Um, I, I can't I, – I, even that. I mean, I'm. It, those were just guys, right? So this is the first year that you're really looking at the guys he's bringing in and sitting there saying, okay, this is this is, this is is where we can start to judge him. Two months in, you're, you're dead on right about um, Tommy Hunter. He's been terrible. Um, Pat Neshek has been hurt, so that's not working out so far. But do, do we just dismiss Pat Neshek as hurt, or do we say this is a 37-year-old reliever who's coming off of 71 appearances a season ago, and you gave him a multi-year deal? It, like, well, I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be honest. I mean, here's, here's the thing. Like, he was here last year. They really managed. I thought that the Phillies did a nice job managing him last year. Like, there were they, if you recall, there was one time where he was unavailable – to pitch and it was like oh and, you know he there was like a uncertainty as to if he was available or if he wasn't available McCannon said one thing and then Nishek said something else and if you recall I don't know yeah, if you remember, remember that, that right yeah but I mean they were really trying to manage him because they were trying to trade him and then he he kind of got overused a little bit in Colorado and if you really want to if you really want to you know look at it specifically I mean that's he was used more with more frequency there um, but I think that the Phillies looked at it and said, well, here's a guy that we managed well, and when we managed him well, he had great numbers, and that was just a year ago. So they kind of looked I, – I, I can't kill him for it yet. Now, if Neshek doesn't pan out this year at all, 
then we can sit there and say, okay, all right, maybe you should have known a little bit better. And, and what's but the plan? He, I think I read that he's he's expected to throw on this trip, right? Yeah, like he's going to try trying, to put this in motion. But yeah, he's going. He's going. And the thing of it was is that, and they said it on the broadcast during the game that he's going to throw a bullpen on the trip, and that they feel like if it goes well, that he could be a quick recover you know quick quickly get back to the majors not like he's going to need like this big rehab stint or anything else like that like it's something he can get back to really fast so i think that they realize that the pen needs some help yeah <laughs> and, and they want to get him in whether whether they're expediting it a little bit here or not i don't know so anyway so that's that one's still kind of up in the air um but if you look at the other two i mean arietta i mean you can't go i mean the guy's been really good for you so far i mean santana's Got off to a slow start, but I mean he's really come around in May. I mean he's leads the team in, in, in I, know, I know it's not a great stat, but he's leading the team in RBIs in May. He's leads the team in home runs. His on base is still really good. He got his average now up to now I think he's up to like two thirteen or two fifteen now, uh, which is it sounds terrible, but when you consider where he was, it was at what one sixty. So I mean he's, he's raised his average fifty points. I, again, I mean, maybe it, maybe you say that one's still to be determined, but I mean, it's not a it's not a loss by any stretch of the imagination. So I look at Klintak so far this year, and I sit there and say, eh, like, it, like it's I'm not ready to kill him, and I'm not ready to praise him either. I, I think we got to let it play out a little bit more. I think this is the first year you can really analyze him as a general manager. Yeah, Hunter's the interesting one. Um, yeah, two fifty nine uh, batting average, balls in play, career. Uh, and he's at three. I'm sorry, no, 283 for his career. It was 259 last year. He's at 395 right now. Uh, opponents batting average of balls in play. I mean, it just he's been just fat with his pitches. He's actually giving up almost twice as many hits per nine uh, as he did a year ago. Uh, and I just I wonder though, like there is a track record here with this guy. Like I don't think he's this bad. And I I would assume that there might be some some reversion to the to the norm to the mean with him. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's been a rough go. Yeah, it has, and I'll tell you something that's really kind of interesting is um, I, I don't, I really don't know what happened. I wish I did because the original reports when they signed Tommy Hunter, and there were multiple guys who are plugged in in this league, originally reported that at, it was Addison Reed that the Phillies were after for that role, and that that's who they were signing. And then it came out afterwards that oh no no no, uh, it's, it's not Addison Reed. Uh, it turns out it's going to be Tommy Hunter. And so somebody must have told – and it was multiple reports. It wasn't just one guy who said Addison. It was, it was multiple reports. I want to say it was Rosenthal and and um, John Heyman. And, and I think there were like three guys. And I, I remember seeing it come out with the, at the time. I was like, oh, wow, Addison Reed. That would be a nice addition to this bullpen. Yeah, it's a shame because Addison Reed's pitching pretty well this He's pitching year. pitching great for Minnesota, <laughs> right? He really is pitching well so. for Minnesota. Yeah, so like it almost. So makes you have me the right wonder, idea, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but well, it almost makes me wonder, like, what didn't go, what didn't go right there? Was it something? Was it something on the Phillies' end? Was it something on Addison Reed's party on his agent's end? Was the, the Phillies, you know, ha, you know, have second thoughts? Did they think that maybe there was something physical they weren't a hundred percent on, and they then said, "All right, well, let's go with Tommy Hunter instead." So, like, that's an interesting, and I don't think we'll know. I don't know if we'll ever get an answer to that, but you know, I. I was I wish almost wish that it was was Addison Reed at this point that was uh, the guy that the Phillies ended up with as opposed to Tommy Hunter. Yeah, and then you go down into the pipeline, 
And uh, so MLB Pipeline, it's a site that kind of does a little neat organizer of top prospects. And yep. uh, this is not by any means the end-all, be-all. This is not the definitive list. Uh, but it just kind of gives you an idea of, of who's highly regarded in each individual team's organization. And uh, if you look at the Phillies' top 10, 11 prospects, you have to remove Sir Anthony Dominguez from that just because he's up now. But of the 10 guys that are remaining down there, Eight of those guys are from the prior regime as well. And the two guys, or I'm sorry, seven of those guys are from the prior regime. And, and the three guys that, that aren't, um, Mickey Moniak, who, uh, <laughs> if you really want to get depressed sometime, just take a look at uh, Mickey Moniak's stat line down there for uh, Clearwater. Uh, 168 at-bats this season. He has no home runs, seven doubles. Uh, he has a 514 OPS. Uh, Adam Hazley, uh, he's actually been much better lately. He's up to 275. Um, he's hitting 333 with two home runs in his last 10 games, but he, he had a decent rookie year uh, in Pro Bowl last year, and he's been okay. He's been better lately. I, I don't know that what he is at this point. I don't think he's a star. Um, and then you have Jojo Romero, who was excellent last year, and he's kind of really emerged through their system. Uh, but he's having a tough year in, in uh, Reading right now, um, and his ERA is up over five. So it, you just look at that really not only just how the, the major league – roster is is composed at this point or what it's comprised of but then I also look at their their elite level prospects and and that may be a little bit unfair the uh Eniel De Los Santos guy um he he's been very good that's Clentax uh, his group as well but I just look at this and I go Matt Clentac doesn't have as many fingerprints on this thing as you would think he would three years in and that's just yeah, kind of no, where I'm coming from not to be it, critical of him not to say he's doing a, a poor job but it's kind of it's kind of the prior regime's work at this point. Yeah, yeah. It, the fingerprints, I think, for Clintac, those guys are all still a few years down the road, right? I think that a lot of the players that he's drafted since he's been the general manager um, really haven't, you know, progressed through the system just yet. So I think a lot of what you see down in single A ball, uh, rookie ball, or or high A, um, I think that's the, those are the guys that ultimately are going to sit there and say, okay. Um, that's who Matt Clintac brought in, and let's see how they turn out. And you know what? Not only that, but I think that what he's going to be defined by is his ability to go out and, and use the money. Um, yeah. Th- this offseason, whether it be this offseason or uh, after the 2019 season, to me, he has these two offseasons to really make his mark. Can he yeah. go out and, and get the right guy? Can he win the war? Can he can he identify who he needs to go after? And, and can he get those deals done with those players? And if he's able to do that and push this team into contention and make them a playoff contender over the next few years, I think that that's going to buy him time on the development angle. But if, if he can't get it done or he whiffs in free agency, I, I think he might be – I don't want to – I don't want to say he's going to be in trouble. I don't want to go that far. But I think ultimately the perception of Matt Clentac in this city is going to be determined by what he does over the next year or two. And I think that that is fair to say. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think you're right with that. Um, their uh, Phillies director of player development, Joe Jordan, um, uh, spoke with, a f- I don't know if it was, I think it was a, mo- a few writers. Um, I know one for certain was Todd Zalecki from MLB, um, who talking about um, – some of their prospects and because you know the draft's coming up um next week and the phillies have the third overall pick in the draft um so they're gonna get another top prospect right right away and so um the discussion was about you know hey your your three previous first round picks who were drafted high um uh you mentioned hazley who was eighth last year moniac was first overall in 2016 and then cornelius randolph who was 10th overall 
in 2015. All three are outfielders. Uh, none are none have done particularly well, though, like you mentioned, Hazley's doing okay. I just wanted to read you a couple quotes from Joe Jordan. Sure. Um, Joe Jordan talking about Cornelius Randolph, who is uh, only 20 years old, um, by the way, and he's in double A. Um, he's hitting 195 so far with a 536 OPS. Um, Joe Jordan says to him, says about him, I believe as the summer went along last year, he caught up to the speed of the Florida State League. I just think that for the third straight year, he's one of the youngest players in the league he's in. I fully expect him to catch up to the speed of the game and turn things around. And I think that's fair. I mean, when you're when you're a younger player playing up, um, it kind of takes a while. And and last year he was in, in Clearwater, and in the first half of the season he hit 220 with a 651 OPS. In the second half of the season he hit 284 with a 839 OPS. So Maybe maybe the jury's just out there. Moniac is the one you had mentioned who's doing who's terrible, and you mentioned his stats already. Jordan defended him, and this is this was interesting. He said Moniac is so much closer than people realize. I watch his at bats every morning from the night before. If I'm not there, he's just got to be stronger. I think the strength is the biggest ingredient that's missing with him. I think he's swinging the bat much better than his 220 average. I expect him to get going. Again, I can't spin it. The numbers are what they are. But I really believe that Mickey is swinging the bat much better than that. He's doing a great job in the outfield. He's going to be a good player for us. Does that sound like he's trying to spin control a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably. I mean, you're not going to bury – I don't think you're going to bury your – your team, your organization's number one overall pick less than, than two years or almost exactly two years after you made it, right? Yeah. Uh, so I don't think it, you do yourself any good by saying, yeah, well, guess what? We probably we probably whiffed on this one. We, we might have screwed it up. I don't think you, that makes any sense. He does watch Mickey Moniacs at bats every day. I don't. Right, so I'm not going to sit here and say, "Well, listen, I, I read the stat line on uh, um, you know minorleaguebaseball.com and I got Mickey Moniak all figured out." Maybe there is a strength component that's missing. Maybe he does evolve. I would tell you that um, if you look at a number one pick's overall production two years into his professional career, that you would like to see more than what you what you have here. Um, yep. I know that there is a, a certain element of projection to these things. You, you're not getting a finished product when you take high school hitters. Uh, there needs to be a growth element to it. But at this point in the game, I would like a little bit more than a 514 OPS. That's just me. Maybe he does figure it out. Maybe we don't need to bury the guy. And I, I don't know anything about his work ethic. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to. But I think that there's real reason to be concerned with Mickey Moniak's future. And I will say this. If you don't get Moniak right as the number one overall pick in 2016, and then you don't get Adam Hazley right as, what, the eighth overall pick yeah. in, in 2017, yeah. one of these guys has to pan out. I mean, if you whiff on both those guys, two top 10 picks, that's that's a setback for an organization, regardless of what you have already at the major league level, regardless of what your spending power is. You, you, cannot, you cannot just miss on two in a row, and maybe three in a row if you go back to Randolph. So Yeah, and, it, and so it even makes this year's pick that much more paramount because what a lot of people don't realize is Phillies don't have a second or third round pick this year. They, only, they have the first round pick, but they lost the second and the third because they became – Carlos Santana and Jake Arrieta, um, so they really have to hit on this first rounder this year, and or it, else. It sounds like everything that I've read that they're going to go college hitter. Um, that yeah. seems like the direction they're going to go, and and I think it's going to be the kid from Wichita State, uh, Alec Bohm. I, I think that that's where they're heading. I know he plays third base. Um, he has a little bit more of a power projection. 
His defense isn't great over there. Uh, talk about moving him maybe to possibly first base eventually. Um, I, I know the one that everybody is is really intrigued by is Nick Madrigal, um, yeah. the, the Oregon State second baseman. He just and you may have said this last week, uh, which is which is definitely a, a, a fair comp, but he just is so similar to Scott Kingery. Yeah. Um, little, uh, smart, instinctive, puts together good at bats, has good speed. He struck out only five times in 29 games this year compared to 12 walks. He hit almost 400. He was hurt at the beginning of the season. Uh, his sophomore season, he had 27 walks and 16 strikeouts in like 50-some games. Uh, very good defensive player, but a limited power potential. And uh, he's kind of considered by many to be the, the best overall hitter in the draft. But it just seems like because you have Cesar Hernandez, because you have Scott Kingery already in the system, it, it doesn't make quite as much sense on the surface anyway to go that route. So I think they're going to go with the kid from Wichita State. And that seems like what a lot of mock drafts are starting to line up for them as well. And you know what I think they're going to do? I think they're going to go with a pitcher. Well, that would be they, interesting. Well, I, I only say that because – Three years in a row, their first-round pick has been in, in, uh, a position player, and they haven't taken a, a pitcher. And I think that they're going to look at some college arms. And I'll, I'll tell you if, if you know if Casey Mize or Brady Singer stay are still there at three because they're they're considered I think the top two um, pitchers in this in this draft. I would I would bet since one, they both you know they are both SEC pitchers, um, and you see how quickly college pitchers can progress i mean nola it was what within three years he's in the, in the majors um made two and a half yeah i think um, he was well he was 2014 right the seventh or eighth overall in 2014 was it 14 or 13 yeah, yeah okay i believe it was 14 and he was up so was by 16 he was up by right? 15 wasn't he no 16 yeah 16 16 right so two years um so yeah so i think that if either Casey Mize or Brady Singer are there, I think that... And uh, it that looks like, from what I've seen, Mize kind of slots in as the, the two guy. And it, Singer, I think, would be there. Uh, so it would be interesting to see if they do that. Yeah, uh, so I, I think that's the, the only that's knock on that, go. and I think you had made this point uh, a couple of weeks ago, is that when you look at their when you look at their system, the Philly system, their elite-level prospects, their top 15, 20 guys are all yep. pitchers. So, yep. I mean, you can, as they say, you can never have too much pitching, but... Uh, they they do need some help there with with the, the younger bats. Uh, then again, you go out and you sign Manny Machado this offseason, and it doesn't matter. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, okay, one final thing, one last thing. Is that, is that what we're calling this now? One last thing. Yeah, one last thing. Um, th- thanks to our buddy on Twitter. Um, so I like to. Th- we always like to end the show with looking at uh, an issue that's uh, from around baseball. Um, and uh, on Thursday. Um, the MLB uh, sent out a press release on Thursday that just kind of shocked everybody, um, and it was that there was a there were results from a comprehensive study of baseballs, the actual balls themselves, um, and it was uh, the study was done based on the surge in home run rates over the last three or four years, and um, in a nutshell, uh, these studies suggested that. Baseball has been played with a livelier ball in recent seasons. Um, and up until this press release came out, Major League Baseball's response to the home run surge was, nope, there's nothing different than the ball. It's never, it's no different now than it's ever been. And now yet we find out that that is no, not the case. So here's the thing I want to point. Here's where I want to, the, the way I want to take this. So Rob Manfred, 
announces in the press release that, you know what, we're going to adopt the recommendations from the committee, um, which intensifies the level of the science when it comes to keeping control of the product on the field. So we're going to standardize procedures for testing uh, aerodynamics of baseballs. Uh, there'll be more refined specifications for Rawlings, who manufactures the balls. Um, we're going to look at you know, uh, environmental conditions and how balls are stored in, in each ballpark to see if we should use a humidor like they do in, uh, in cores. Uh, to store the game balls, um, and, and, and all these things that they're saying. And it makes me wonder, how did how did the balls get livelier to begin with? Like, do, do they think we're that stupid that the you know, Rawlings secretly made balls livelier? No. Major League Baseball made those specifications. They wanted to see these these numbers improve. They wanted to see everything jump up. That's why the balls are more juiced, because the league made them so. And the fact that they're trying to sit there and, and make us feel like today, oh my, you know, this is we had no idea that this was the case. We're going to fix this. Is baloney. They're feeding us a freaking line, and I, and I hate that. Nothing I hate more than than putting up that facade that, oh, well, we had nothing to do with this. When, in fact, we know you had everything to do with this. And that bothers me. That completely bothers me. I don't know about you, Bob, but it bothers the hell out of me. Major League Baseball employs a system right now where they can tell you exactly where an outfielder is standing in the outfield and how hard he throws the baseball to a base, right? Everything that StatCast does, they'll say, oh, he ran 72 feet and he did it in, uh, you know, 3.8 seconds. And the catch probability, historically speaking, since StatCast has been invented, uh, is, uh, you know, 71.7% that he would catch that baseball is the out probability. So you're telling me that they have a system that can – analyze numbers to that type of detail, but they don't have a system in which it's baseball manufacturer, the fundamental element of the game, the most important critical part of the game. They don't have a way to monitor and check the integrity and composition of that ball. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's not possible. It's, it, it's just an impossibility in my mind. There's no way that major league baseball didn't have a grasp on that. And I love the article because I, I have the same article up right now. And it talks yeah. about like how they're even going to tighten up the procedures for how the Delaware river mud is rubbed on the ball. Yeah. Like, the, <laughs> you on. know, like the, the fact that, that, that this ball has been just so that it, it doesn't go through some painstaking process that these balls aren't aligned properly like major league baseball saying like oh it turns out we didn't know like i don't buy that for a second so i agree with you there it is interesting though the the article mentions how um you know the the possibility of of the environmental conditions of how the balls are stored so should all baseballs be placed in a humidor like they are in games used at course field or uh, that they're being used at chase field now this season as well um should the ball have the same type of, of of I don't know, you know, and I'm not in, I'm not a science guy here, but should the baseball be kept as, as, as practically the same in, in all conditions or should we say, well, what the hell, you know, of course you go there, you know, the ball's going to get out of the yard. So what, I mean, where, where do you kind of line up on that? So we can agree that major league baseball probably knew what was going on with the baseballs, but in terms of how they should be handled, should there be a uniform policy across all 30 stadiums or should you just say, eh, you know, the ball plays certain ways in certain places? No, there should be a uniform. I mean, the this the park itself will should dictate the differences, right? I mean, the the way the park is laid out, or where it's where it's you know physically located, and you know the one in in Coors is in in Denver with the air being you know being a mile high, the air is really thin. Okay, fine, 
but the actual process for the baseballs should be the same. Like, why should you be playing with different conditions on the ball from one city to the next? That shouldn't be the case. I mean, if you want to sit there and say the quirkiness of a ballpark will change the outcomes of games, you know, some in favor of a hitter, some in favor of a pitcher, that's based on its own physics. Okay, fine. Um, but at the same, but that that doesn't mean that we should treat the balls differently. Like the balls should be the balls, and they should be the same no matter what. Um, I think the interesting thing is is for what baseball has to decide, and, and you know the reason that they we had the uptick in home runs, and the reason you had juiced baseball, and this isn't the first time they juiced baseballs back in the steroid era as well. I mean that was the combination. You had guys who were. Um, on the ju- on the juice and the balls were juiced at the same time and that's why we saw record home run numbers back in the late 90s um, but baseball has to decide what it really wants to be does it want to be a home run happy league you know does is that what it really wants to be with all these strikeout high strikeout rates I don't know I mean there was a uh, I think Rob Manfred also talked over the weekend and saying that the, the league's looking into that too they're re- readily aware of it and it's something that they want to address the strikeouts are there's too many strikeouts in the game. Well, how do you how are you going to change that? Because everything that's all based on you know launch angles and stuff. Well, if you make it that the ball doesn't fly as well, I guess then people aren't going to try and hit as many home runs now, are they? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, guess outside that, of, of raising uh, or I guess lowering the mound angle, uh, I think that that would probably have an impact and a decrease well, in that strikeouts. Was like they, and that's they did that in what 1968, yeah. right? And that's when Bob Gibson had that 1.12 ERA, and they said, "Well, we can't have that happen anymore." Yeah. I mean, I think the I think the league's ERA was under three that year, um, even though Gibson's was 1.12. I think the entire league was under had an ERA under three. So that that's that would be terrible too. Then you'd have games that are every game would be one nothing, two one. I mean, it'd be terrible. Um, but you also don't want <laughs> you also don't want it to be, you know, ridiculous sum of home runs. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that you want to see the ball put in play. You want to see fielders use their athleticism, yeah. make plays. You want to see some strategy to it. You know, you, yes. you don't want to just say, oh yeah, he threw the ball hundred. I mean, you know, you think back to five, six, seven years ago, a guy comes in and throws the ball hundred miles an hour, and you go, damn, that's that's must see i want to pay to see that yeah well now you get three or four guys on every team that can rev it up over 96 97 miles an hour on a nightly basis there's no novelty to that anymore so no, eventually your eyes are going to glaze over you go okay great he's throwing 100 miles an hour so what you know and um yeah. you, outside of a guy like a Rolls chapman nobody was doing that well now all of a sudden there's multiple guys doing that and, and it's just not as impressive so baseball needs to find a balance where you know like you said there is a, a strategical element to it that where that's emphasized where you see defenses making plays where you see balls shot into gaps you know you you, you see plays at the plate guys going first to third like that's what baseball is and yeah we want to see home runs and sure we want to see strikeouts from time to time but they got to get back to a point where there's more of a middle ground featured um the the one thing i would say about that and it, it i find this to be fascinating is that the arizona diamondbacks so we talked about the humidor being used to chase field this season arizona diamondbacks scored 5.02 runs per game in 2017 they were the fifth best offense in baseball in terms of runs scored per game last season this season they are the second worst offense in baseball behind only the Miami Marlins 3.62 runs per game that's almost one and a half runs per game less this season and there are different factors that can go into that injuries matter the I mean look at a guy like Paul Goldschmidt who's just having a a nightmarish season 
to this yeah. point. I mean, I think he's hitting a shade over 200 coming into today. And he has been a disaster this season. One of the best hitters in all of Major League Baseball. But don't tell me the fact that you've changed the integrity of the baseball, the composition of how that baseball stored doesn't have any impact on the offensive performance of that team to this point. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so they've got to figure this out. And they're a little bit of a crossroads. I mean, nobody's going to say, oh, I'm not watching this because I don't trust the integrity of the baseball right now. But they do, and I agree with you. They have to find a way to get this thing more uniform. And they've got to try to find a way to, to make this baseball play where things are happening a little bit more moderation. And I think that that has to be the goal. So step one is this bogus acknowledgement, which we can kind of roll our eyes at, but I would still (laughs) view this as a positive development because the fact that this is out there now, this literature is out there, it exists, leads me to believe that now they're going to take corrective steps to, to, you know, fix it. Well, I hope so. I hope so because, you know, all we were focused on on the offseason was pace of play, pace of play. And although we've knocked five minutes off the pace of play, uh, we're still averaging three hours a game. Yeah. <laughs> so. as, as we saw tonight with our uh, midnight start time on this podcast, it's now one twenty-four a.m. here in the East. Uh, yeah, so. I know. I know. It, it just it, you think we have it bad, Bob? Yeah. Mets and Braves played a doubleheader today. I know, right? and they're still going, aren't they? They're still playing. Yeah. <laughs> the game is still going on the second game. So Atlanta is losing, I believe, right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah, they yeah, got them right where they want them. They're losing yeah. in the ninth. So yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sure they'll put so, up four runs against uh, hey, Mister Familia. Char- just wait for Charlie Culberson yeah. to come up with the bases. Yeah. Loaded. There you and, go. And this thing. Well, that that uh, ought to wrap it up for us for this week for uh, another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. Uh, we want to thank you as always for tuning in and check out all the other shows on the Crossing Broad Network, the Crossing Broadcast Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Snow the goalie, which usually comes out on Thursdays, but depends on Russ Joy whenever he wants to do it. I mean, I'm always ready to go, uh, but that's the Flyers podcast. And then we have two soccer podcasts. It's always soccer in Philadelphia with Kevin Kincaid. It talks about the Philadelphia Union and Cross. Broad FC with Russ and Phil Kaidel uh, talking about the uh, European Soccer League. So check out every one of our podcasts here on the Crossing Broad Network as we will come to you every Tuesday with this Phillies podcast looking back at the week that was and the week that's ahead for your fight in Phils. So once again, for Bob Wankel at BW Crossing Broad, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at Ant San Philly. We'll see you next week. <laughs>